Claudia Rankin is the author of five collections of poetry, including Citizen, an American Lyric, and Don't Let Me Be Lonely, as well as two plays, including The White Card, which premiered in February 2018. Among her numerous awards and honors, Rankin is the recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Lannan Foundation, and the MacArthur Foundation. At her John W. Klugel lecture at the American Academy on November 11th, she shared excerpts from her next publication, Just Us, a collection of essays that critically engages with the conversation as a racialized space. Our producer Tony Andrews sat down with Rankin after her lecture to discuss the various dynamics at work in the conversations she quotes in her book. She starts by describing the approach she takes. Just Us is a book that seeks to investigate how conversations derail themselves, um, what kinds of emotions we have that cause us to stop or will us forward in uncomfortable conversations around race. And so I, I each um, section of the book is a recounting of a conversation with someone. These conversations were then um, brought to a therapist, a fact checker, a lawyer, before it, my, my memory rendition of the conversation was returned to the person I had the conversation with, with an invitation for them to respond. So what I think is so powerful about this is that in this process, you get to do, you get to do what we don't get to do in real time conversations. You get to step back and sort of reflect on a meta level, on a psychological, emotional and factual level. You get to think about what is happening. And I really love that concept. And we're going to try to recreate or at least appreciate the spirit of that in today's episode. So you gave a lecture at the American Academy recently. You recounted some episodes, some scenes in your life, as well as some exchanges that you've had with people, specifically on the issue of whiteness or white privilege. And so we're going to listen to the first conversation and this one is one that takes place at an airport. So let's have a listen. <laughs> and I will say the opening scene, um, the first um, encounter that I recount actually happened. So that's real life. And then the letters start coming in. A while back, I was standing in one of those southwest airport lines, where you're organized numerically, apparently the fastest way to board a plane for non-first-class travel. A white guy about my age approached and asked, What number are you? Before I could answer, he added by way of explanation, I am number eight, and I don't want to accidentally get in front of you. I thanked him for asking. You're fine. I'm 10, so we're all good. He said he loved airplanes. No phones, no news, can't read the news, can't stand the news nonstop these days. Without giving it a thought, I responded, you shouldn't have voted for him. (laughs) 
then like when someone is transferring a liquid to a different container and they slow down the pour to stop spillage, he said slowly. It's not just him. When you hear that, what, what do you think is being, what do you think is happening on the various levels? Well, in terms of um, writing it down, there were things that were researched, like the fact that Southwest has come up with this numerical ordering of its passengers. Um, I obviously knew that's what's happening because I'm in line with a number, but I didn't know till looking it up that they had determined it was the fastest way to board a plane, um, excluding first class travel. The, the question that um, people often ask me around this incident is, how did I know that he voted for our current president? And Donald Trump. Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to say his name. Um, and, and it was a kind of um, assumption that was made instantaneously based on things it shouldn't have been based on. You know, he, he was a businessman um, in his mid-50s to 60s, and, and I happen to know that that demographic voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. So I think... Um, that's sort of what emboldened that final moment when I when I said to him, you shouldn't have voted for him, and he said, it's not just him. So that was maybe even like a surprise to you in the moment when you said you shouldn't have voted for him? Mm-hmm. I didn't. It, it wasn't a calculated articulation. It He said what he said, and I said the next thing that came to mind. Obviously, it had come to mind because I'd been thinking about this thing for a long time, and I knew the stats in terms of who had voted for him versus who hadn't. Um, so he kind of walked into that. Um, and, you know, it would have been a delight if he said, but I didn't vote for him. Um, but that's not what he said. So on the first level there, we have assumptions. So um, an assumption that you made, and he probably had assumptions about you. And what do you think that sort of tells us about the discussion around race right now in America? Well, you know, he 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 was being very polite. He came up to me. He obviously wanted to chat. Um, he was open to a conversation. So in that sense, I regretted shutting down the conversation. But I don't actually regret saying what I did. I just regret that I wasn't able to reroute it into um, further inquiry. Um, I don't know what um, assumptions he made about me, but given that he no longer wanted to talk to me, um, I think he might have assumed that that would have been my positionality as well that the conversation was now over. We were now in our respective parties. And sort of like this line that he comes up with, it's not just him. Your piece also ends on those words. Um, what do you think was behind that? 
I, I think he means that the media is more the problem than Donald Trump. I, I think one of the um, the ways in which the Republican Party has created chaos is to present everything as false news and um, delegitimize um, different news outlets and um, claim that everything is being created to attack him. So I think he might have been suggesting that he didn't want to hear from anybody at this point, including him. Um, but but again, you know, this is the, the funny thing about conversations. You really never know what's going on in somebody else's head. Yeah, all you have is what they make explicit, mm -hmm. and then the rest is swimming around in your head. Exactly. It's yeah. all associative and guesses, and which is why it's exciting and why we have conversations, because I think we always want to try and get to know the person a little bit better, one assumes. Is there anything that you think you would have or wanted to say in this moment that, having reflected, um, you would like to say now? That has also been asked me, and I, I don't know. I, you know, it's. I think I'm much better as a responder than I am as, um, the creator of the conversation. So, after he said it's not just him, um, I think I said something like, "You're right, it's not just him," but, but I. It, I have been racking my brain to think what I could have said that would have solicited yet another comment from him. And I can't quite get there. So that's that says something. <laughs> yeah. So this next exchange was a response to a New York Times article you wrote entitled, I wanted to know what white men thought about their privilege, so I asked. You received hundreds of responses, some in the comments section on the website, some in snail mail form. I think you mentioned uh, Jane Austen kind of letters. <laughs> <laughs> this next response sort of articulates a common reaction to discussions about white privilege. In it, the speaker bristles at the word privilege in the phrase. And as we listen, let's maybe cast a historical or psychological um, lens on this to see, you know, what, what's behind this kind of, of thinking. Every goddamn thing is about identity politics for you. The problem with this is that you are far more privileged than the vast majority of white males, regardless of the shameful history of slavery and the overall statistics. Are blacks oppressed? Absolutely, generically speaking. Should this be changed? Absolutely. But you are not oppressed at all. The way to solve all this and to get Trump's white, white workers on board for positive change is to stop, stop focusing on race and gender and start focusing on class, money and power. I do think that focusing on race and gender risks missing the role of class, a much more cogent force. At the lecture, I remember you saying something that really struck me, that when white men respond to the idea or the, the phrase white privilege, they get stuck on the privilege part and they make it an economic concept, which you sort of said doesn't really apply or is not the right way to think about this. Mm -hmm. Could you speak to that? Well, if, if I said to someone, 
this is your privilege. That is very different than saying this is your white privilege. In my mind, adding white to it means that there's something that you have that is tied to your race, which is different than thinking about it economically. And for me, the difference um, in terms of white privilege and my life is that white people have a kind of mobility to move in spaces, an assumption of belonging, the ability to live their lives without fear of death. That, you know, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about white privilege. If I wanted to talk about economic privilege, then I would say economic privilege. And they keep um, in the responses wanting to push white privilege into economic privilege as if um, economics could be a safe word that would erase all of... um, well, erase the afterlife of slavery in the in the in the U.S. and um, and so one of the things I think was a mistake in the article was I didn't define what I specifically meant about white privilege because I take it for granted that they understand and know that they are able to move around freely when I can. They can go into stores without being followed. They can um, be approached by police without thinking they're going to be killed. And so that is so um, clear in my mind that I didn't think that they didn't know that. So it's a yet another moment where, you know, black people, white people are walking around with very different ideas. I mean, to think about it economically is to think is to take something for granted that I can't take for granted. I think w- what's happening here is that there's some denotative meaning of, of words, mm-hmm. and then there's so many connotations that each party at the conversation is associating, and the other side doesn't seem to have access, which is part of what you're doing right, mm-hmm. right now, giving people access to the assumptions that everybody seems to be you know, entertaining. Exactly. You know, People talk all the time about how... Um, people of color and white people are living in two different realities. And until we start explaining what the reality looks like, um, we won't be able to have that conversation. Let's move on to the next one. So this, this next one expresses a feeling that a lot of white men identify with, which is exacerbation at the moral indictment that is implied in the term white privilege. If number eight could read my thoughts and asked, Why are you thinking of me as a criminal? What am I doing in a lineup? So often these discussions seem to demonize white people when we are just trying to make it day by day like many others. Assuming that I have something to apologize for, something solely because I was born white, is as good an example of racism as I can cite. My parents were first in their families to attend college. My wife is the daughter of Holocaust survivors. We give to organizations that work for justice or to help the disadvantaged. We support candidates who oppose the practices you point out. That's why we get tired of being assumed to be on the other side because of skin color. Basically, what I'm saying is that because we can't change history, slavery will always be a historical fact. When does this argument that white people did X, Y, and Z 
cease to make sense. Imagine a hypothetical situation where 200 years from now, race relations have improved to the point of being a non-issue. Will the wokest of the intelligentsia be coming around saying, look at what white people did? Maybe we're tired of being punching bags for aggrieved authors. Not every white person feels the need to constantly apologize for being white. I certainly do not. That last phrase or the last two sentences, um, maybe we're tired of being punching bags for aggrieved authors. This sort of exhaustion at having this moral assault on themselves. Could you comment on that? Well, I think it's one thing to feel like I don't, I, we, this subject has been addressed enough already. But if the reality of black people is not changing, then the subject shouldn't change. Um, people are, are acting as if the times have changed and people are talking, people, black people are talking about something in the past rather than addressing something that's happening right now. And if the same thing keeps happening, then the same things will be said. And what they might think about is why the same things are being said. So clearly the reality hasn't changed drastically enough to, um, you know, if you can read the paper, turn on the television, and see that kids are being, black kids are being killed. Unarmed black children are being killed by the police, and the police are getting off. That is a profound problem. It's not a little problem. It's a profound problem. And that's the thing they should have a moral problem with. Not that they're being asked to account for their kind of passive collaboration with this form of injustice. I think also what's being expressed here is this, you know, in this phrase, punching bag, and that he as an individual feels no personal culpability for systemic uh, injustices, but feels like on a day-to-day -day basis is made to feel guilty for this. And so there's this disconnect between being held accountable on one level, but having no means to actually feel or attain retribution. Um, so it's, it's this sort of like moral quagmire. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things the United States has been brilliant at is having its citizens feel like they themselves are individuals. They're both citizens and are ready to call other people non-citizens, but they're individuals. I did nothing, but I'm a citizen and you can't come in. So suddenly they're collective and then they're individual when they feel like it. But they're citizens. We're all citizens. And consequently, we're all accountable to this democracy that is not functioning as a democracy. And so given that, each individual is responsible to the democracy. So the mechanism by which they can change things is through democracy, of being able to vote and vote people into power who could change things. Exactly. And, you know, we like to think that there is one people... Um, one public, but there are many publics in the United States, and, and they're treated differently. And yet we're all accountable to the same governing bodies, um, whether it be the executive 
branch, um, the Supreme Court, the um, House of Representatives, the Congress, and people are voting those people in, and those people are making laws that everyone is subject to. And if the laws are treating me differently than it's treating others, people should be able to see that difference and to vote differently and accordingly towards a system of justice. And so this idea that one is a punching bag when people are losing their lives, when people are thrown out of systems of civil rights is almost a narcissistic um, reading of the ass that's being made of individuals inside our, our American system. There's a focus here on the question of time. There's sort of like a thought experiment. How long are we supposed to feel bad about this? Well, this the problem with that is that the, the idea is that they're being asked to be accountable to slavery, when that's not what anybody's talking about. We're talking about a system of mass incarceration. Do you know how many black people are in prison? Um, we're talking about de defunding of schools in certain neighborhoods. That We're talking about the inability to buy homes. We're talking about the vast discrepancy of wealth in the United States between people of color and white people. So... This is not about slavery, even though where we are today is the afterlife of slavery. It's, it's the same policies reinstated under a different name. Either it was segregation and then mass incarceration, which is where we are now. The speaker also mentions that, you know, he does a lot of good. He supports candidates who would want to do good and he's working for justice. Also, in some sense, looking for absolution? Well, this is the thing. If he were actually working for justice, he would understand the positionality of black people who are saying enough has not been done. He would actually see that. If he is making a token gesture towards something that really he has no commitment to change, then he will feel beleaguered. Um, you know, because what does it mean to ask for change, but you yourself won't change? You yourself feel put upon or um, attacked by the call to change. And if we were to entertain this thought experiment, is there a point where somebody is doing enough where they would get this kind of absolution that he seems to be seeking? Well, I don't think absolution is on the table for any of us. I'm not doing enough. No one is doing enough if the system is failing us. So it's not a question of absolution. It's not a question of paid accounts. It's a question of what is happening. What is happening? If you, you know, if, if we're just thinking about paying some kind of an account without change, then, then it's not about change. Mm. I think 
what it's about, I think, is a really crucial point. Um, I think for people psychologically to feel good about themselves, they need to feel like they're good people. Mm -hmm. And um, the discussion about white privilege seems to take that option away. Mm -hmm. And if you feel like you are fundamentally bad or not, uh, not doing enough or have no access to feeling like you're a good person, I think that's the kind of damnation that is being expressed here. Well, white people have to get over the idea that likability is part of it. I am not talking about any individual specifically and their particular likability. I am sure there are good people, nice people, um, generous people. We're talking about what does it mean to live in a system where certain people are outside systems of justice. Until we change the system, we are failing. And that we is collective. That's including me. Let's go on to the next one. So this one draws attention to another implication in the phrase white privilege, namely that people have had sort of life handed to them on a silver platter. In other words, that they haven't worked for what they have. Let's take a listen. Through a long series of menial jobs from junior high school through college combined with student loans, I earned my way through school. With study and the gifts God gave me, I earned my grades. Hard work and a continuing effort to learn have allowed me to build a career. That is why I am deeply offended whenever someone uses the term white privilege. I feel that it belittles my accomplishments and the hard work that they have required. I certainly don't deny that others have faced barriers that I haven't, but I don't believe that equates to privilege on my part. Privileged people receive things that they haven't earned. I've worked for everything that I have. So here he ends off with, I've worked for everything I have. So privilege here assumes a handout. Can, can you speak to that? Well, you know what's funny about this there have been handouts. Um, white people have been, and I use the phrase, you know, um, not about individuals, but as in terms of a group, but white people have been given things that are part of what is considered our democratic system. So... GI the GI Bill, Bill yeah. for example, um, they had voting rights first. Um, there have been communities where black people weren't allowed to live. And that continues in terms of not on paper, but it continues. And they don't seem to see that and refuse that, but were quick to um, condemn people of color around affirmative action. And affirmative action actually is a really interesting thing because the people who benefited from it most were white women. They came into colleges under affirmative action along with people of color. Um, but they've always been people who were given spots based on legacy. My granddad went here and my dad went here and now I go here. It is not an accident that now you go there too. And so there's been a kind of blindness around the ways in which the system 
works for white people, which is not to say that people don't work hard. The whole idea is that if both of us are working hard, you will have the privilege of sameness. People will feel more comfortable with you because you look like them and be ready to open a door for you where they have to have long meetings before they let me in. So it's those kinds of things that, for whatever reason, um, these white men refuse to acknowledge are taking place. I think that's something that I can at least understand from, you know, the, the first time I had my first real job, you know, I was like, this is, this is hard. I'm tired <laughs> at the end of the day. And I think everybody who, who has, a, has a job, who works, knows how tired you feel at the end of the day. And then that seems to be at odds with this phrase, which implies gift Mm -hmm. or it seems to negate that work. So I think there's this tension between, you know, experienced hardship or difficulty and then this systemic level, which seems far removed from their day-to-day -day grind. Mm -hmm. In that sense, I think in this phrase, there's a seeking of acknowledgement of the difficulty of their everyday lives. Yes, and, and that's true, I think. Um, but no one is saying that people don't work hard. People work hard. Um, people have lives. That's what lives are. Lives are difficult and have um, random things derailing us all the time. The question is, are those random things random or are they systemic? In the case of black and brown people, they are systemic as well as random. In the case of white people, they are random. And that distinction is difficult to communicate to people. Um, but no, I, you know, at no point am I saying that people don't work hard. People work hard. I, you know, I, 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 I know that. Um, but what else is happening? The question is, what else is happening? Let's stay with emotions there and go on to the next one. So discussions about race are often very uncomfortable, a point which this next response highlights, an actual fear of the emotions of their black interlocutors. I felt uneasy because white people were always saying I was scary for imaginary reasons. Scary and angry. When people of color are angry or simply assertive, I believe even the most liberal white is afraid. As a nation, as a global culture, we will, cannot get through this difficult transition well unless we can talk together about that with empathy. I feel nervous, guilty, angry, and finally a bit hopeless and confused. So here the speaker actually says even the most liberal white is afraid. Yeah, could you comment on that? Well, I think um, I think societies have criminalized blackness to the point where white people feel afraid of black people. I, you know, I, and it's not even something I think that white people understand is constructed in their imagination. The, it, it, it's um, reinforced in films, in advertisements. Um, 
And so the fear is a real emotion. The question is, is it actually attached to me? And that's what I would ask them to ask themselves. Is the person standing in front of you doing or acting in any way to actually solicit that fear? Um, there is this great thing in um, the train station in Boston where they said, um, if you see something, say something. But then they added, remember, seeing something means seeing an action, not a person. And I love that because it, it, <laughs> it reminded me that they were thinking that, okay, we don't want people racially profiling people. But that is where the fear is. It's inside the imaginative possibilities of whiteness and not in actions of people. And so what one really needs to investigate is we're as, as legitimate as that emotion feels, what is soliciting it? That's on the one level, on the white male's fear of the emotions, but then also on the black side, there's a self-censorship that happens where I need to be as emotionally inert as possible so as not to rile anyone. Well, I think um, one of the ways that people of color and women have been silenced by white people is that they've been classified as if they're women, hysterical, unable to um, be rational, and if they're black, they're angry. And what that does is limit your possibility of reactions to certain responses coming from white people. Because the minute you, you say no, you're irrational. The minute you say no, you're angry rather than maybe this moment, the legitimate and rational response to it is anger or is no, but that has been taken off the table for anybody who is not white. Well, one of the consequences of the election of Donald Trump is that there seems to have been tacit permission given to more uh, white male anger in public. Um, and what do you think what do you think is behind that and what do you think the consequences are? Well, the consequences of that white male rage has been the deaths of people. We have seen the shooting in Charleston. Um, you know, nine people killed in the basement of a church during Bible study. We have seen Charlottesville, a car killing a white woman, hurting a black man um, in the name of white supremacy. So what he has managed to do is say it's legitimate and um, we can hold the anger of white men against people of color publicly without um, feeling bad. And people have been emboldened in a way that they haven't in, in a while. I mean, I think there's a 50% rise in 2018 in white supremacy groups. Um, 
No, we're we're there's a great book by Carol Anderson called um, White Rage, where she looks into these tendencies in our society presently. I think societally, it also represents a shift in that um, not being angry in public used to be associated with decency, for lack of a better word. And that seems to have been discarded. Well, I think what has been discarded is the notion that um, we live in a country where everybody is welcome. And um, white people have now decided that the United States is a country for white people and that everyone else is an intruder and they can be treated, yelled at, asked to account for their um, entrance into their own buildings. You know, there have been so many situations where people have been trying to get into the apartment buildings where they live and white people are asking them to prove that they live there. There have been um, students studying at university and being asked to prove that they are students. I mean, this has been the new trend, which is you don't belong here. Um, And, you know, it's just right under the surface and... Donald Trump has given people's license to to um, to own a space that is not theirs only. At the lecture at the American Academy, you mentioned that you mentioned sort of the concept of a white space and how, as a black person, you can enter that space, but that will always be marked. Exactly. I mean, you know, people say, what are you talking about? Anybody can come in here. But if you go in there, everyone looks at you. And whether or not it's, you know, it's not always hostile. Sometimes they look at you in a welcoming way. But the idea is that your entrance is being noted. And it's being noted because there was a time when you weren't allowed into the space. And and everyone is recognizing the fact that it's a new thing that you're entering and and it's disingenuous not to pay attention to that noting of 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 that because the spaces in and you know of themselves are just spaces and why people believe they're white spaces is because they only let white people in them for the longest time true We have two more. Um, So the following clip is sort of a kind of abdication, a desire to cleanse oneself uh, from white guilt by arguing, you know, in effect, I didn't choose this. Let's have a listen. I did not design the system. I have not manipulated the system. I have not tried to take advantage of others, and I have no means of changing the system. I am a small cog in a very large machine. If you want me to join you in trying to change the world, don't treat me like I caused these problems. I am as powerless as you. I don't care what color your skin is or who you sleep with. I want all of us to be free to pursue our dreams. I donate a fair bit of my income to progressive politicians and organizations. Can I give it back, the privilege? 
I didn't want, take, or steal it. It was conferred. And who's to blame for that? We see also, again, the person wrestling with the idea of the personal versus the systemic. Yes. The, this, I, this notion that um, bringing up race or gender or sexuality issues are taking us back rather than forward um, is, I think, under this. But we can't, if we're not willing to look at what the problems are, we're never going to get through them. And so this notion that it's not me, so don't bring it to me, is, is you know, rubbish. Because we are still here. We're still voting for people every day. We're still interacting with people every day. We're making decisions about how people get treated every minute of every day. And... And clearly that treatment has been wanting. It's happening, you know, in restaurants, in banks, in, in, in hospitals, um, this double standard in terms of how one person is treated versus another. So we have to be accountable to the fact of the matter. And it, you know, the system is as the system is. And, you know, I I just think this kind of magical thinking that we can just w- wish it away and be good people without being accountable to the realities and to the systemic failures that happen is never going to get us anywhere. I think we could end off with another exchange at an airport. This one um, takes place where you had a good conversation with a white man who you said you could imagine being friends with. And then you chat, chat, chat. And then a moment comes up in the conversation in which he suddenly says, I don't see race. (laughs) And I said, oh, no. (laughs) So... I'm thinking in my head, I cannot not say something. You know, this is not a good thing for him to say. So I, I said to him, you're not going to tell your wife you had a nice conversation with a black woman on the plane? And he was like, okay. What other stupid thing did I say? which I didn't expect I thought we were going to be in it and he was like okay and um but what was interesting about him is um you know he 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 then went and bought my books and and sent me an email and we were going to have he said you know do you and your husband want to meet me and my wife in the city we can have dinner and I said sure and then our schedules were both so busy uh, he runs some company. Um, it didn't happen for like a year after our initial conversation. And then I wrote the piece for the Times, and I felt bad because I, you know, I liked the guy, and he had taken the time to get my books, and there it was on the page, this recounting of our meeting and what had happened. So I sent it, him the article. I said, you know, this article is going to come out in the New York Times, and I wanted you to read it first. 
and I wanted you, if you wanted, to respond to it. And, um, and so he did respond. And he, you know, he starts out by saying, this is what happened. You, know, you recounted it correctly. And then he said, but you know, I, after I got home, I realized that there was something else I said to you that wasn't true. He had said that it was only recently that race had become an, a thing that he had to grapple with. That growing up, race was not something that he encountered in school or in his family. And so apparently afterwards he called up people and he said, is that true? And they said, what are you talking about? In high school, it was the white kids against the black kids. The white kids treated the black kids terribly. Don't you remember so-and-so said, are you going to go to the, the basketball game and watch the monkeys play? Don't, you know, people had remembered all of these things over the years and, and recounted it to him. So he said, you know, but then he wrote the most beautiful sentence. He said, why did I say it didn't happen when it happened. Why did I want that to be true? And it was, a, you know, it made me pause. Because it obviously, and so it was a question I hadn't thought about before. Like, what does white, you know, what do white people want when they say, I don't see color? What are they saying when they say race never touched anything in my life? I don't... And it's this thing of wanting to rise out of reality or something. And they want to give that to you. That I'm going to give you that, and in our encounter, we're going to live be, you know, above something and not inside something. Um, so that was interesting. Um, but then he went on to say, but nobody in his family did anything racist. I was like, all right. <laughs> Like, here we go again. <laughs> As you tell the story at your lecture, you, you sort of smiled a little. And there's, there's, something, there's something comical about this almost as you told it. Well, I, I think if I smiled, I smiled. One, I like this guy. He's a nice guy. Um, but two, that people, I think white people who um, are engaged with people of color, or in my case, a black woman, um, it's as if by saying I don't see race, they're giving you something. And that gesture, which I take to be a generous one, intended to be a kind of generosity, actually erases you instantaneously. And so there's something kind of... Um, insanely comical about that, that this thing that's supposed to say you're included in my world instantaneously just wipes you out. And and clearly not what he intended. Um, and what I loved about him was when I said, you know, hey, you know, I'm a black woman. You're not going to say this is how you're going to describe me, so don't say you don't see race. He didn't um, get defensive. He didn't um, turn his back. He didn't try to explain away what he said. 
he just recognized that, yeah, that doesn't work. And, and, and then thought, oh, maybe I said some other things that didn't make sense. And that was really surprising to me. And also the move that made us able to continue talking. So it was a, it was a really lovely um, exchange. Yeah, and I think there's a contrast. In the first conversation that we talked about, it, it ended off where things sort of were shut down. And this one had a little bit of levity to it, and the conversation could continue. And, and you said that there's still a correspondence going on between you. So what do you think can be learned from these two conversations that bookend at least our conversation? Well, I think what was fantastic about the, the latter one was that he didn't ask me to enter a reality that wasn't real for me. And that I considered a kind of gift. You know, it was like, okay, this is the world that you see. And I see how that is the world that I'm in. And um, so let's move forward from there. And, and that allows you not to be the same person, but to actually be seen and to see. And that, that really is all you can ask. The discourse of the debates around white privilege are sort of similar to how people feel after a climate change documentary in that they, they feel the enormity of the issue, but also a certain sense of personal lack of agency or ability to change things. Is there a, a distilled one directive that you would give them, okay, now go and, you know, separate your plastics or now go and recycle or, you know, now go and empower or now go and break down injustice? Or would you say that, you know, this issue just can't be boiled down into six steps, you know, that we can do to change the planet by 2025? Well, I mean, you could now go and vote in ways that allow others to live, understanding that your life already has a pathway. I mean, that would be a thing to do. You could also now go understanding that no one is faulting your goodness, but only asking you to look at the realities as they reflect on the lives of people who perhaps are not white. You know, those, those, it's a question of perspective. It's a question of what are you voting for? How are you continuing to limit the civil rights of other people? I mean, these are tangible things that can happen in a, in a life. Let's leave it there. Thank you so much, Claudia Rankin, for talking to me. It's been an honor to listen to you. And I really look forward to your upcoming book. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an interview with Claudia Rankin. You can listen to more of our Beyond the Lecture series interviews on our website, AmericanAcademy.de. There, you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and Twitter. Our show today was produced by Tony Andrews, and I'm your host, RJ McGill. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.